This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for Resolve Dash Masterclass. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. All right. Welcome, Darius Dale. Adam, what's up, buddy? Body afternoon riffs. It's so great to have you back. And I think the timing couldn't be better because it does seem like we're on the verge of maybe another phase in this crazy cycle that we're in. Can't wait to get your perspectives. Darius was kind enough to send over, I think, around 300 pages of context. (laughs) It was was awesome to go through it. So we're going to try to steal the most salient points here for you guys today. Anyways, Darius, thanks again for coming on. So good to have you. Oh, always a pleasure to be with you guys, man. You guys do phenomenal work. I love the thought leadership you guys provide, Adam, Richard, and your rest of your team, Mike, all those guys. So just thanks for having me. Thank awesome. you. Thanks for coming in. I guess before we jump into the conversation, just to remind everyone that this conversation is for information, hopefully entertainment purposes. Nothing we discuss here should be seen as investment advice. Seek a professional in your own jurisdiction that knows your circumstances for that. And with that, we can have a good, wide-ranging conversation. Yeah. Darius, maybe... Paint a summarized picture of what today, or what is very foggy today in in, in trying to understand asset allocation, risk appetite. It seems like it's a very confusing time for the average investor, to say the least. Yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll break it in part into the real economy and the financial economy. Sometimes they are the same. Sometimes they diverge. They always meet up. So with respect to the real economy here in the U.S., we think we are on a path to recession. We've had the view since last summer that the U.S. economy had a lot more juice and resiliency than the average investor realized. And therefore, we were going to have a much delayed start to recession in 2023 relative to investor consensus. Recall that we came into the year with most sales side consensus, most investors expecting like a first half recession, second half recovery. We came into the year thinking that a recession, the highest probability outcome would be Q4 of this year. And when we look at the rest of our models, the the second highest probability outcome is, is Q1 of next year. So we were always knew we were going to be on this elongated path to recession. Obviously, figuring out markets is the much harder part in between now and then. Secondarily, with respect to inflation and with respect to U.S. inflation, we know that, sorry, let me, let me do the rest of the world's growth and not inflation. Obviously, we also came into the year with the view that Chinese economy would have this sort of one-time off, one-time reopening impulse, but then level off from a growth standpoint. 
i.e. there was not real any real positive momentum, like pent up demand in the Chinese economy due to a lack of fiscal stimulus and really the overhang of debt that they were dealing with in terms of their structural liquidity trap in 2019. Recall, that's what the Chinese economy was on its knees in 2019. It got COVID and reopening from COVID without stimulus puts you right back on your knees. And that's the call we had on China. So that's been obviously working in markets. And then with respect, with respect to the European economy, just confirmed the recession. You're still dealing with the lagged impacts of monetary tightening, not just in the European economy, but really for most ma- major economies, ex- with the exception of China and Japan. Japan tightened a little bit. And so that's, in our opinion, that recession that we're seeing on the tape in Europe over the medium term is probably going to get worse. And it's probably going to have some market impact to the currency market because there's some real inefficiencies in terms of how it's currently being priced. With respect to inflation, U.S. inflation, we know, is the most lagging of lagging business cycle indicators. It typically breaks down in recession and through recession. And so the concept of seeing any real evidence of getting back towards two and sustainably to, to, to infl- 2% inflation, which is the Fed's preferred target, it's unlikely to we, we get any of that evidence until we get into the recession, which augmented our call that the Fed was going to stay more hawkish for longer. They've obviously shifted a little bit in recent months due to the regional banking panic. We don't necessarily believe that is appropriate because when we study the inflation cycle here in the U.S. and the concepts from the perspective of our statistical models, there's really nothing in the time series that says we're going to go to two and stay at two. The time series is screaming, go to four and stay at four right now. And so I think we there's a little bit more work to be done, either in terms of the Fed acknowledging that there's more work to be done, or in terms of the bond market having a panic attack about the lack of work that is being done. Either way, it all leads to the same place, which is the Fed's going to have to do more and they're going to have to force the economy into recession. And they might over, they're likely to over-tighten as a function of that secondary input process, lack of understanding on inflation and understanding that it typically breaks down well into the recession. Darius, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I was, I'm curious, have you been surprised at how quickly the Chinese and Eurozone numbers have started to disappoint? Like, they came to the party really late in terms of starting to get hawkish, raising rates, trying to tighten condition, and it's certainly in the Eurozone. And they're already showing like pretty substantially disappointing growth numbers. It, totally. it, it looked like that caught markets by surprise too this week. Yeah. So on China, no, I think we, we pretty much outlined our view on China very specifically and very accurately. Europe, yes, very surprised at the speed with which European economy has rolled over in response, obviously, to monetary tightening. And most importantly, in Europe, there was still a lot of, quote unquote, fiscal stimulus, whatever, in the pipeline, whatever that means. I've been doing this for 15 years. I still have no idea what that actually means. But that's, what, that's one of the things people were saying, right? There's a lot of stuff people say on Twitter and whatnot. And allegedly, there was a lot of fiscal stimulus in the pipeline, but it's obviously not showing up at a time where you would expect it to show up, which is obviously with the year's own economy and recession, real retail sales are tracking down two or 4% pick your economy. And so that's, that was a surprise in terms of the speed with which Europe caught up, because I think one of the biggest implications of this is this sort of mismatched pricing in the currency market. In fact, I have a slide on this. I can share my deck. Yeah. One of my favorite slides, one of my favorite charts in all of global macro right now is this sort of a, this imbalance that we're seeing in terms of money market pricing. Can you guys see the slide here at 48? Yes, sir. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. So what I'm showing in this chart, the blue lines in these panels, so the terminal policy rate for the Fed, first panel, ECB, Bank of England, and the Bank of Japan. The red lines show the floor policy rate. So, you know, where is the policy rate going to be out to two years? We're looking at the OIS curve in terms of the minimum value. So the maximum value on the OIS curve and the minimum value out to two years. And so, as you can see, we're pretty much right around the same place in terms of floor policy rates for the U.S. and the Eurozone. But the reality is the terminal rates for the U.S. and the Eurozone are way off, which ultimately means they're calling for the U.S. to cut almost twice as much as the Eurozone, the ECB is likely to cut. And what economic outcome does that happen, in my opinion? I can't, I can stay up all night 
envisioning an outcome, but that almost never happens in any real outcome. So to me, I'd really think about, has the currency market gotten ahead of itself in terms of pricing in dollar weakness and euro strength in recent months? And our answer to that question is definitely yes in the context of what could be when we hear next Thursday, which is a very different tone out of Madame Lagarde with respect to the ECB's outlook in terms of fighting inflation. They may take the easy way out and say, we're in recession now, let's just wait. To what extent could this lack of signal or confounding signal be a function of a broken transmission mechanism from a single perspective, given this change in in liquidity that we have between the TGA and the Fed, quantitative tightening, all these different dynamics that are at play. Is it perhaps the case that whatever signal is being drawn from the pricing of two years out is actually just capital allocation, not reflecting economic data, but rather short-term preferences? I think less. I think it may be a factor, but what I think is the dominant factor here is if you notice the sort of trend in these floor rates, they went up and up, and then we hit our terminal floor rates here in Q4 of last year, and we've been flagging since. We peaked around four, and we're at 320 now in the U.S. And so that's the market, that's the market basically saying, okay, this is the neutral rate. You know, if you go beyond this, you're going to have, you're not going to be able to sustain this level of the policy rate. And so that, that dynamic sort of happened in late Q1 for the Eurozone, right around 3%, and then they backed off towards 2.7%. I do believe the, we can talk about this in more detail, but I do believe this sort of a, this discussion of the likely liquidity reduction we're going to see in the coming months, really, a lot of it's going to be concentrated over the next two months, specifically with respect to the refill of the TGA. I think that's pretty well known and well telegraphed at this point. But also what is very unknown and very, and very untelegraphed and something that we've been focusing on in our research at 42 Macro is the general return of Uncle Sam to international capital markets. In fact, I have a chart on that. I think it's the next slide, which is, uh, yeah, so we, we crawl that we've been at the debt ceiling. So in this chart, I'm showing the statutory debt limit here in the U.S. in the blue line. The red line shows the public debt subject to the debt limit. And as you can see, the blue line and the red line values have been the same since mid-January. And as a function of the blue line, and the red, value, red line values being the same since mid-January, what does that mean? It means the United States, the largest borrower in the world, the, the, at the top of the international capital structure, has not been issuing debt on a net basis since mid-January. And as a function of that, we, the global private sector, have not had to create balance sheet space to accommodate that. And so it's allowed us to speculate in other assets, go down, take capital, take credit risk in the fixed income market, take equity west of the equity market. Bitcoin's up a lot, quote unquote, year to date. Don't get me started on that nonsense, whatever the hell that means. <laughs> but June 9th, what the hell does a year to date return mean on June 9th? <laughs> but anyway, so that my key takeaway on this discussion is that there's going to be some indigestion associated with the 7% budget deficit that we're just running and operating, which is, by the way, a record budget deficit outside of recession, outside of war here in the U.S. And ultimately, what does it mean? Is it means that quantitative tightening, which is, quote unquote, going on in the background and it has truly been going on in the background since mid-January, will stop going on in the background. It'll start draining bank reserves again as a function of the return of net coupon supply. You've seen this probably chart from us before. It's not, it's, it belongs to the people now, but our net liquidity model here where we show us that balance sheet minus the TGA and the reverse repo facility balance. And then we also subtract the, the emergency lending as well in terms of trying to get a true approximation of the net liquidity that's being supplied by the federal government. And the reality is that correlation broke down right at the beginning of the year, right when QT stopped draining bank reserves. And ultimately that correlation has got to pick back up in the coming weeks. Were you surprised that Yellen announced that the vast majority of new issuance is going to come from bills and not coupons? Any insight uh, into what they're trying to do there? Yes, I was surprised because it's not clear that we have the kind of, we have the, so again, when we talk about inflation, one thing that's very clear from our perspective is, I think we model inflation as well as most people on Wall Street, 
And the reality is when you look at the sequential momentum in the inflation time series, this is what keeps me up at night as it relates to not, and is really, thankfully, has really kept us out of being too long, too long, too many bonds with the recession playbook on in recent months is because we are compounding sequentially at four to five percent inflation on core PCE and consistently around four percent inflation on super core PC inflation. There's nothing in that time series that says the red lines, which are the year over year rates have changed, the blue bars are the three month annualized growth rates. There's nothing in the time series that says the red lines are going to two and staying at two. They, eventually, we think they will if we were right on our call for the recession to commence in Q4 or Q1 of this year. But the reality is we're not going to see the kind of degradation of uninflation that you typically want, to, the Fed really wants to see until maybe a quarter or two after that, because that's the history of the U.S. economy. Inflation is the most lagging indicator of the business cycle. And I guess I was confused, too, because it seems aside from weakness in the labor market and weakness in services demand, and a little bit of continued disinflation in rents, we probably need to see some disinflation in markets. Animal spirits are an important component of spending patterns and this inflationary impulse, right? And I thought that maybe Janet would be more predisposed to issue more coupons to take some of the air out of the, some of the oxygen out of this, for example, some of the AI bubble that we're seeing. Like stocks are getting pretty frothy again, right? There's a lot of, that kind of speculative energy. I thought maybe more coupon issuance would be prudent to just deflate some of that energy and give, give the Fed a little tailwind in its mission. But instead they went bills and they left all that oxygen left in the system. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So uh, we've tracked this pretty closely. If you look at the composition of bills versus coupon on a net issuance basis, T-bills accounted for 20% of net, coupon, uh, net issuance in Q4 of last year. And they're targeting a move towards 80% by Q3 of this year a linear price higher. You're right. They're really taking the easy way out as it relates to refilling the TGA. And this is, I think this is new evidence. So let's think about this from the perspective of like market participants in future liquidity cycles. They, this is a signal to us that they don't want to use this as a policy tool, the TGA. They'd rather not use it as a policy tool. It's literally exactly, it's an emergency measure or it can be used as an emergency measure to save off debt selling that drama. But the reality is it's clear that they don't want to use this as a policy tool. They'd rather center the policy back on rate hikes and QT. And the reality So it is, was just a happy coincidence, starting to drop, but just it was uh, a happy coincidence that the drawdown in the TGA helped attenuate some of the effects of quantitative tightening in the last couple of quarters. As the TGA was being drawn down, the negative effects of, from a liquidity standpoint in the markets were somewhat dampened yeah. by the, the TGA drawdown. And I guess that going into reversal, so this was not a coordinated Treasury and Fed policy, but rather a happy coincidence. That's your... Yeah, it's... The, for, we don't know. The reality is no one on Finn Twitter, on talk, no talking head knows they can have a, a very colorful narrative. And Danny Kahneman says, well, be careful of those colorful narratives. Most people don't know Danny Kahneman is watching us. So I'm just realizing. Uh, Google <laughs> Danny Kahneman if you don't know who that is. Very important person. Uh, but yeah, I, I, what I think is it really just happened is that it was just a coincidence of events, right? Like we hit the debt ceiling in January. That was where we were supposed to hit it. And they had to draw it down. The, process, the negotiating process, obviously, in D.C. took longer than I'm sure Jenny Yellen would have preferred to. I don't think this woman prefers to be in the news. She seems like a very kind, meek old woman. I don't think she wants to be in the news in the middle of the global financial markets. So I think it's more coincidence than anything. And I think, again, this move to replenish the TGA with primarily bill issuance is a pretty clear signal that they don't want to use this as a policy tool to tighten monetary policy any further. Don't forget, the House view is that there are some regional banking crises going on yeah. that is going to effectively tighten monetary policy for the Fed. Right. Which is BS in my head. To me, here's why it's BS. 
Isn't the whole point of monetary tightening to push through tighter credit conditions through the banking sector so that they can push through tightening credit conditions in the real economy? When yeah. that happens, you can't say it's an additional policy tightening. It's just the reaction to the tightening you've already done. Yeah, exactly. It was what you intended to achieve in the first place. Totally. <laughs> but it's structurally going to be changing the credit availability. And once this downturn inflects and we're not, and then we're worse again into more positive cycle. This is definitely going to be affecting as you see, this is a slow moving type of crash, but it seems like the regional banks are in some deep trouble and there's probably going to be some consolidation in the banking system to some degree. So it's likely going to be affecting, there's going to be a second, perhaps third order effect to this whole yeah, debacle. Yeah, it's very benign to me. I'm showing in this chart here. So yeah, I agree with you, Richard, but it's, I would be, I would be much more concerned if we were talking at the beginning of April. And the reason I say that is because what I'm showing in this chart is total assets on small banks, and that's any bank outside of the top 25 in total assets. There's about 4,700 banks in the U.S., so you can imagine there's a lot of these institutions. And at the beginning of April, you know, what had been a consistently positive, you know, like 2% three-month annualized rate of change in terms of their total assets, it really shifted to like down three really quickly. And I assumed in the beginning of April, I'm sure like everyone else did, including the Fed, that down three would turn into the down seven, eight, nine, ten in the coming day, coming quarters. And very, it's very much not. We're literally a quarter since the region, the height of the regional banking crisis. And we're at compounding at minus 1.9% in terms of their total assets. And more importantly, if you look at the CNI, CNI loans, because to me, that's like the most economically sensitive aspect of their, of the lending portfolio, CNI loans at minus 2.6%. It's in three, three month annualized growth rates. This doesn't look like there's like a real credit crunch going on in the US economy. This looks like there is a tapping on the brakes of credit intermediation, but a tapping on the brakes in the context of like nominal GDP, you know, let's call it four to 6%. I don't know. Like, it doesn't seem like it's going to do much. So again, I go back. And the reason I made the statement I made earlier is because I'm very, we track this data on a weekly basis at 42 Macro. I don't see anything that looks like the Fed's going to be right in its view that this is going to create a, a couple more rate hikes. This looks like all the rate hikes you've done already. That's what I'm seeing. Yeah. And we're not really seeing it yet at all reflected in, in break-evens, right? Like, it's amazing how sanguine the bond market is in the face of what is what has been unbelievably persistent core PCE. Any insight into why the bond market just continues to refuse to buy persistent inflation? Yeah. So to me, this is the biggest question of our time. And quite frankly, I think it's why we're having the eye bubble. Because I think the bond market is starting to figure out that this Fed may take the easy way out on inflation. Because the easy way out of inflation is, the easy way out of inflation is, I think we might have over-tightened. Let's stop now, hope for a soft landing, and magically inflation is going to get to 2%. That has never happened in the history of the U.S. economy. There is no time series history of core PCE breaking down substantially ahead of a recession. In fact, you actually tend to need to go through the recession to get core PCE down significantly. In fact, so we typically decline on it. We decelerate on a median basis, 82 basis points in core PCE in recession. This is going back to 1950s when the time series started. We decelerated an additional 36 basis points. So you can expect to see somewhere around on a median basis, center distribution, 120 basis points in core PCE deceleration when you're talking about going through a year after the recession concludes. We haven't even started the recession. So you're talking about sometime in 2025. If we decelerate, if the recession starts today, we're going to get to three and a half percent core PCE a year sometime in early 2025. That's not acceptable. And this is an issue for the bond market because what I'm showing in this chart here, this is probably the scariest chart in macro if you're a fixed income investor. It's probably the most bullish chart in macro if you're an equity investor, because it means there's going to be flows out of the fixed income asset class, incremental flows out of the fixed income asset class. And I don't, I'm not making that call yet, but I will make that call if the Fed starts to get real 
cute about the soft landing BS because it is BS. There's no history of inflation doing what they say it's going to do outside of a recession ever in the history of U.S. economy. <laughs> so getting back to this chart, what I'm showing in this chart are term premia. It's an extremely walky, esoteric fixed income expression. It's the, to explain this in kind of lamest terms, if the additional rate of return you might get, or if the premium or discount you might get for locking up your money for in, in the units of time, as opposed to rolling over the T-bill for the same amount of time for how long it takes. So instead of rolling over 10 one-year T-bills, what, just what's the premium you get instead of doing that compounding versus just putting your money in a 10-year treasury. And right now you're basically paying the treasury department to, for the safety and security of being able to lock in someplace so your money somewhere safe for 10 years. And at that premium, that discount is minus 66 basis points. So you're paying Uncle Sam for the privilege of holding a 10-year treasury. And right now, if you go back to the 1970s, late 1960s, when the last inflation war began, we were pretty much what felt like a, a negative term premium back then, which was zero. And over time, it just climbed and climbed because the Fed was too easy with respect to its willingness to do what it takes, to do whatever it takes to get the inflation genie back in the bottle. Ultimately, we t- it took Paul Vorker taking interest rates up to 20-something percent to get term premium to sort of to, to reverse that in that process. And the reason term premium climbed and inflation is climbing, it's not because it's pricing in more inflation. What it's pricing in is the volatility in economic forecasting. Don't forget, bond prices are composed of their nominal expectations and, the, and then the risk premium. This is the risk premium component. It's hard to forecast growth and inflation when inflation's high. We've done a big statistical study on this with data going all the way back to the 1800s that shows when inflation, the higher inflation goes in terms of quartiles of inflation volatility, the higher realized and nominal economic growth go in terms of their respective quartiles of volatility. That's, a, that's an issue for the bond market in terms of this starting point. It's almost priced to perfection in terms of, in terms of the soft landing outcome. And then secondarily, Adam, the blue line in this chart shows inflation expectations. So at 2.16% on the 10-year, it's, it is, it's even more priced to perfection. Like it's yeah. Yeah, one way. Yeah. And so this is my concern as there's a lot of investors out there who are in a similar camp as us, maybe not in the same timing because like, we've been right as rain on the timing in respect to recession. But I think we all, many investors share the view that the U.S. economy is headed for a recession. Many of them have full maxed out allocations to fixed income. And I'm not sure bonds are done going down. Because again, I think that either the bond market is going to wake up to a Fed that is hoping for a soft landing. And I guarantee you a soft landing, at least based on all the historic, historical evidence, is 100% back test. Soft landings in the economy equate to soft landings in inflation. And the bond market might start to sniff that out. And if the bond market starts to sniff that out, that's going to be pain, obviously. But it may cause the Fed to actually have to chase the bond market higher. Who knows? I just don't know if it's appropriate to be max on fixed income yet. I think we're going to get an opportunity to buy fixed income, you know, amid some of this liquidity reduction this summer, but I don't think we're there yet. So we may be facing a sustained period of policymaker equivocation, right? Where they flip dovish too soon, the bond market panics, they're chased, they're forced to chase the bond market higher. And so you've got even more, so you've got policy uncertainty then on top of the sort of general inflation and economic uncertainty that you get when you've got sustained higher inflation rates, right? How do you expect the equity markets to respond to that kind of outcome? As long as we're not in a recession, you don't have the equity market doesn't have to care. The equity market just care about the flows dynamics and the liquidity dynamics. Liquidity's not been great in the last couple of months. It's not as nearly as negative as it has been in, in 2022, but it's certainly inflected a little bit. But to me, I think what the, the biggest driver of the equity market right now is sentiment and position. Clearly sentiment and positioning. The CTAs are making money in the seven stocks and then most people are staring at the other 90 something. <laughs> that's kind of the, that's the, uh, that's the running joke on Wall Street right now. And 
I don't know if that has to change because when we go back and we look at our relationship between the business cycle and the market cycle, particularly in and around recession, the stock market tends, there's a few stats out there for those folks and they need to hear this. The stock market tends to peak like very close to the recession process or not very close to the recession. It's very close to the peak in the employment cycle. So right now on a median basis, if you go back and look at all the recessions we have, the unemployment rate data for us, since, so since World War II, the stock market has peaked on a median basis one month ahead of the recession. Or sorry, not the recession, so I keep saying recession. One month ahead of the trough in the unemployment rate. Okay. So that's, that, that's, that's something to note. And more importantly, stock market tends to gallop into the, into, the end of a, into the end of the business cycle. The median return is plus 16% with an interquartile range of 14 to 20%. There are no non-double-digit values in terms of the one-year return leading up to the peak of the stock market ahead of a recession. So it's pretty consistent across history, very, sorry, not pretty, very consistent across history to see strong equity markets leading up to a recession. And if you're right, based on what I just said about the timing of the peak of the market, you can easily see, again, we're calling for a dip here this summertime and in the context of liquidity cycle dynamics I've highlighted, but I could easily see that dip being bought by discretionary managers who got to chase performance into year end, chasing that dip, rallying this thing in October or December. And then that's probably the final bull off top that we're looking for to really get bearish and put some shorts on. And a rally in equities with a narrow, very narrow breadth, right? As you pointed out, seven stocks leading the charge. So is it historically the case that these bull off top, these melt ups, these end of party type of rallies are typically with a very narrow type of breadth in the market, very few stocks, the mega caps leading the charge and everybody else floating or even yeah. down? To this extreme degree, no, but the breadth is typically poor at the late in the business cycle. You can just pull up a chart of an S&P and Russell and put the recession bars on it. You can always see yeah. the Russell peaks before the S&P or, or S&P Russell Dow. It's Russell S&P Dow. That's how the process works. And it's generally consistent across business cycles. So you typically lose. And that makes sense, right? Like people think about a recession as this sort of, all right, light switch, the economy's in recession. That's not how it works. It's what's going to happen is between the three of us, whoever took on more leverage is probably going to go into recession first. I'll volunteer. <laughs> I don't do that, but I'll volunteer anyway. <laughs> and then Adam, maybe his wife spends too much, then they'll go into recession. And Richard, he's single guy. Uh, he's, he's going, then he maybe, maybe even avoids the recession, but that's how the process works. So you think about this for companies as well. It's not this monolithic thing. It's some of us are more levered than others. And some of us are going to feel the pain and pinch of tighter monetary policy sooner and more, more forcefully than others. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully so my wife sure. will hear that last part. Put your hands on your single. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you on the inflation side of things, is it possible that despite all the rhetoric, the Fed just sees allowing inflation to run a little bit hotter for the next few quarters, couple of years as the easiest way to inflate away the real value of so much of this debt. It, it, do, do you see this as being like part of their plan that despite the rhetoric, they, they, they need to show a strong face against inflation to the public, especially from a political standpoint, but that this may be part of their plan or something that they are striving for, even not openly because of how it helps to delever the economy to some extent? Yeah, I would take it from a different perspective. These people don't want to delever anything. What about, what have you, have we, go back and look at the fiscal response, the bipartisan fiscal response to COVID. But obviously, COVID was a pretty special circumstance, but it was unanimous to just dump money on people in the economy with two, two different sets of Congresses, two different sets of folks in the White House, the same outcome. I, so I went back and looked at the total amount of public debt we accumulated from the end of 2019 through the end of 2021. So obviously, we got two Congresses, two presidents, two White Houses in there. 
And it was like a very linear rise in public debt. It was up, uh, we increased the public debt by $6.4 trillion. The Fed monetized $3.3 trillion of it in terms of outright treasury securities purchases, not by the growth of the balance sheet, by outright treasury securities purchases. To me, what I think is happening is a more bigger, broader structural kind of change and shift in the public sentiment around debt and around who's going to solve the society's problems. Is it is the man, is the individual, the laborer responsible for solving their own problems, or is it going to be the public sector? And I think we're this move towards populism that really started in 2009, right? Populism is not new. It's just getting bigger and bigger as the problems for the common man have gotten bigger and bigger with respect to inflation, maybe some structural unemployment that might come out of AI, who knows? I think it's going to be a very interesting decade in that regard. But going back to your original question, Richard, to me, it doesn't seem like they want to inflate away. They don't, they want to delever. To me, it seems like they just want to solve problems. And the way they solve the problems is to just lever up the public sector balance sheet. So I could see that be... I don't know how you reconcile a constantly expanding fiscal balance sheet with low inflation in two or three years. The two are completely incompatible. And if you look at the budget office forecasts, there are increasing deficits as far as the eye can see. This is what is so baffling to me. There's a, there's a clear demonstrable causal and empirical relationship between fiscal deficits and inflation. Yeah. And we are getting larger and larger deficits that both sides of the aisle have committed to them over the next decade or more. Where is this 2% inflation? How is this happening on a sustained basis without a massive financial crisis? 2% is marketing, Adam. <laughs> that's, it's not happening. It's marketing. Again, so, I'll, so I'm joking. But it's not marketing because that's what the bond market is pricing. Yeah, right? it won't. It's good marketing. That's it. The bond market bought it, but I don't think they're going to buy it when they to the, when we get to the other side of this business cycle. Because again, we're going to go to 2% inflation in a recession. The problem is, are we going to stay at 2% inflation if the budget deficit right now, we have a record non-war, non-recession budget deficit of minus 7.3% of GDP. Like that, that to me, like we blew the budget deficit out to 9% of GDP or something like that in the financial crisis. We're basically operating in financial crisis, fiscal proficiency right now in this particular moment. And it, it's bizarre. It speaks volumes to, again, this kind of populism movement, which obviously means the Fed's job is much harder in terms of getting inflation cheating back in the bottle. And this is what I'm so concerned about in the terms of the bond market. Is the Fed going to be credible and serious about whatever it takes to get to 2% inflation? Because it can happen. If the, and I had a great call with them on our fixed income world, one of the world's largest fixed income desks and the head of the desk said to me, tip of the cap, because back in August, I said the neutral rate much higher than people think. And that, that, that they, they made a lot of money on that view. Not just obviously they have a long team, obviously, but there's because one of the reasons we thought there's a lot of cash in the economy. If you look at checkable deposits, both in terms of the household sector and the corporate sector, that's about 3% of both of those balance sheets up from 50 basis points. You got to go back to the 1960s to see this much cash on the private sector balance sheet, both household and corporate. And so that's one of the views that supported that view. And another reason we had that view is that, look, the fiscal response is very aggressive. Like we're talking about back then, it was like 5% deficit to GDP, you know, in a, in a boom, in what was a booming economy, more or less. And that to me is, I think that call is very much come home to roost in the bond market. But the reality is, if they stay at it with this fiscal program, in turn, and it looks like we're very much going to be at it, the debt ceiling, for all the talk about the debt ceiling, they very they barely did anything as it relates to the, out, the structural fiscal outlook. You're right. Like it's the, the Fed's job is much harder. And the Fed's response to their acknowledgement and response to their job being much harder, it determines the fate of the bond market. I happen to think long term, they're going to take the easy way out, which is pivoting back to their employment mandate. 
Right now, it's fashionable to anchor on the, the price stability mandate. But when the going gets tough, when unemployment's three or four seven or five seven instead of three seven, that's when they, the inflation mandate drops and they just pivot to something like three percent or three and a half percent. I don't know what the number is, but obviously it's very structurally bullish for things in our bonds because the flows out of fixed income it's going to be wild. But that could be a year or two away. So, are you of the same mind as I am about the fact that basically the equity market is pricing in a premature pivot, right? That the Fed is going to blink and they're going to let inflation run hot, or at least they're going to make noises about the fact that they've already done all the work they need to do and that inflation is going to come down on its own through some kind of magic wand process. And the bond market is giving the Fed far too much credit that they're 90% confident that the Fed is going to stay strong, do what it takes in order to defend the currency, the value of the currency and the real value of, of debt securities. And so we've literally got two different sides of the market pricing in two completely different tales. Mm -hmm. How is that reconciled, do you think, from an asset allocation standpoint? It's, I think the bond market, they're both going to be right and wrong at different points. And in fact, I think a month and a half ago, I was in one of our programs, I said both bulls and bears are going to lose lots of money over the next three quarters. Bears are going to lose money first because it's too late to put the recession playbook on. The inflation is going to prove stickier. Growth is going to prove more resilient. And ultimately, positioning is on the short side of the equity market and the positioning on the max loan positioning in the fixed income market, but in terms of some allocators, it was going to be shaken out. But then obviously you get to the recession part of that that in a couple of quarters, and that's when the, that's when the bulls get shaken out. So I think, again, both parties, bulls and bears, are going to lose a lot of money before the end of Q1 of next year, in my opinion. Um, in both bonds and stocks. Yeah, because the bulls who are long stocks now are going to convince themselves that it's a soft landing by year end, and that's when they lose a lot of money. The bears who are long bonds now have not really reconciled this is the Fed has not proven to be credible with respect to the longer term structural outlook for inflation. I think they've done enough to convince a, a lot of folks that inflation may be potentially going back to 2%. But if you're actually doing the math on this stuff, like I am here at 42 Macro, it just doesn't seem like that's going to be the case. And ultimately, I think sometime in the next few months, it's going to become the case. In fact, I'll tell everyone to mark a date on the calendar, August 10th, that's when we report July CPI. It could be the case that inflation starts to reaccelerate again on a year over year basis in July, because we're going to lose a very difficult comp in June. And so if inflation starts to reaccelerate again in, in July of, the, of this year, again, that's August 10th, we get that data point, bond market's going to be limited down on that day. Who knows? That to me is, it could be a very big buy. It might most likely will be a great buying opportunity for fixed income, but I don't want to be long fixed income into that. Because again, the Fed is going to have to come out of it. If the, you want to buy bonds, the most, bullish at, the most bullish thing you can do to buy a bond is a Federal Reserve that is taking a bat and beating the economy. Just right. beating it and knocking it out and destroying nominal GDP. The most bullish thing you can do as a stock investor, obviously, is buying an economy that the Fed is beating with the bat, but the low, when the economy is lying on the ground bleeding. So it's almost kind of two parts of the same process. And so going back to what you think stocks are pricing in, this is one thing we know. I don't know if we can go back to the chart on slide 37 here. One thing we know is that stocks have not priced in a recession. So what I'm showing in this chart here are various indi market indicators that kind of give you a sense of, you know, where you are in the market cycle. They, they are bounded indicators. That's why I like to look at them, not stationary. And so they, they are stationary, my apologies. They are stationary. And what I'm looking at is what the peaks and trough of these particular indicators, where they got to in previous recessions. The green dotted line it corresponds to the, uh, the 20, 2001 recession. That was the shallowest recession in U.S. history. The orange dotted line corresponds to the 1990 to 1991 recession. That was the third shell of succession U.S. history, driven by completely different dynamics. That was energy shock. The green ones was more of a capex burst. And then the obviously the financial crisis, housing bubble burst, et cetera, is the red dotted line. The blue dotted line is the mean for those peaks in each of those recessions. 
So this is the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index top panel. We got investment grade credit spreads in the second panel, high yield credit spreads in the third panel. And the most important panel, in my opinion, in terms of the relationship to the equity market is the high beta, low beta ratio. This is the ratio of the high S&P 500 high beta index relative to the low beta index. And why do we look at it that way? Because we know at various points in the business cycle, it pays to be long high beta stocks, high beta securities, because they have more economic and operational leverage. And at certain phases of the business cycle, it pays to be long low beta stocks because for, ex- for exactly the same reason, they have less economic and operational leverage. And so as a function of that, they go, their earnings go deteriorate less. Even at the lows well, of we, last year, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask about when we're talking about the equity market pricing in a recession or rather not pricing in the recession the way the bond market is. I, I think there's an argument here that stocks are pricing in a recession with the exception of mega cap technology, right? Because when you think about the Russell and we, when you think about the equal weight S&P, these are not performing, right? These are not price of perfection by any stretch of the imagination. And they've actually been struggling quite a bit. In, so this apparent divergence between the bond and stock market has a lot to do with this concentration of the mega caps for the S&P and particularly for NASDAQ. Do you see that? Because oftentimes, historically, we've seen whenever there's a big divergence between what bond markets are pricing, equity markets are pricing, equities are typically more susceptible to speculative mania and this sort of thing. Whereas the bond market, I think, is more perceived as the, as the smart money or, or the larger allocators. And there's more signal there, whereas there's a bit more noise in the equity market. But Correct me if I'm wrong. It's, it, it seems like maybe the broader indices are showing weaker <clears throat> equity performance than otherwise. I, so you, that you, very loaded question, Richard. There's a few things that I want to touch on specifically, but just to your primary point that the market is priced in recession. We are very much on the, in disagreement. We are on the other side of that boat, respectfully. And the reason I say that going back to this high beta, low beta ratio is that this ratio has not broken out of this sort of 1.5 to kind of 1.92 range, this entire bear market or whether you, allegedly we're in a new book market this week, but that's neither here nor that. I don't really care about that characterization. But the fact that we have not even gone to one, which is where we've gone in the last few non-recessionary cyclical slowdowns, we go through one when you go talk about going to a recession, we haven't even broken out of this range yet. And so it's telling me that the sector and style factor dispersion in the equity market has not given a damn about the earnings outlook, has not given a damn about the cash flow outlook, about the margin outlook. Everything that's happened in the equity market has been deflating the multiple and reflating the multiple at various intervals. All has been happening. And we've had a little bit of degradation in earnings, and that's caused some of the downdraft in other sectors and style factors. But in a recession, in a non-recessionary cyclical slowdown, this ratio goes to one. It's at 1.7 right now and has not broken below 1.5 this entire process. So I, I, we would very much be on the, and this is, and where we come with this analysis, go back to what Stan Druckermiller said 20-something years ago, the late 90s. The best economist in the world is the internals of the stock market. And you're all the guys knifing basis points at Citadel, Millennium, and 0.72, et cetera. They know their companies better than we know anything about macro. That's for sure. And for them to not price in a degradation in some of these higher beta, higher leverage securities tells me that recession has not been the primary concern. It tells me the primary concern has been about the changing liquidity condition, both to the downside last year, to the upside from Q4 to Q1, and then back to the downside over the last kind of few weeks. All right. You are, if nothing else, a data-driven analyst. So I want to give you a chance to talk about your data-driven models, right? So one of the big ones I understand is your, you've got a crowding model. You've also got a macro weather model. Which of your models do you think is maybe doing the best job of capturing the major themes at the moment and maybe drill down into what that model is suggesting? And then 
maybe we can talk touch on what the shorter term kind of crowding model is saying in in terms of how to tactically position over the next few weeks relative to the next sort of six months to 12 months? Yeah, great questions. I apologize. I don't have the our crowding model in this particular presentation, but I can just give you some of the highlights. So in the past few days, we, we got bearish crowding signals out of uh, bearish crowding signals, i.e. take the other side of the trade. And in RSP, that was uh, equal weights, small caps. Recall that post that jobs report last week, we saw a big catch-up trade in the cyclical sectors and stock factors. Yep. And then so that the crowding model basically snitched on that a couple of days ago and said, hey, no, stop chasing that. This is the time to be selling that stuff. But again, that's a very short-term model. Those signals tend to get resolved in a week or two, some, at most three weeks, but generally speaking. Is it momentum-driven? Is it sentiment-driven? The crowding? Positioning-driven. It's positioning-driven. What we're looking for are things that are over, on the short side in terms of that model. We're looking for the expressions or exposures that have indicated a high RSI, i.e. they're overbought, and you're seeing an extreme deviation and extreme positive deviation in flows into the particular ETF. And so that's a you get extreme positive deviation in flows, a very high RSI. That's obviously people chasing the highs, right? There's a FOMO chase to the highs. In so much when we're looking for long signals in that model, we're looking for extreme negative deviations in flows, and we're looking for a low RSI. So you're basically puking something that's already oversold. You want to take the other side of that and supply liquidity to the market. And so that's, that's the genesis of that model. Our weather model is our primary risk management tool that we use at 42 Macro. It's the basis, it's a foundational basis of our systematic portfolio construction process. Down here on slide five, Ani. What the system is designed to do is quantitatively score and create signal out of all the things that we know to be very influential to the market cycle at various parts of the business cycle. And I'll start with the real economy. So the, we, we build it down to sort of 10 principal components of macro. The, the reality is it's probably only four or five that are truly really that impactful, but they all matter at various points in time, which is why we, which is why we keep it in there. And so in terms of the real economy cycles, we look at growth, we look at inflation, we look at employment, we look at corporate profits, we look at fiscal policy. In terms of unpacking growth, our two indicators for growth for the growth cycle are the OECD composite leading indicator that's currently trending lower. So that's the current signal there. The Bloomberg, we derive the next 12, the implied delta from next 12 months or growth and inflation forecasts in terms of what they're signaling. And so we look, we're basically saying, okay, is Bloomberg consensus, the Wall Street economist consensus, anticipating an acceleration of growth from today over the next year? Or are they anticipating a deceleration in growth? from today over the next year. And that number is minus 165 basis points. So that's obviously negative currently. So you get two down arrows in growth. With respect to inflation, we're tracking headline inflation. That statistic has more, it produces more dispersion across asset classes than all the other inflation time series. That's the one the bond market tends to care about the most. And so that's been trending lower, obviously, in terms of that next 12 months headline CBI delta, the implied delta, it's also negative as well, minus 155 basis points. So that's a negative signal. In terms of the unemployment cycle, Unemployment rate at 3.7%. That's been trending lower as we're basically right around a 50 year low thereabouts in terms of the unemployment rate. Next so month consensus unemployment rate delta. So we're taking that same process, deriving with the what Wall Street economists consensus believe the unemployment rate's headed over the next 12 months and they go up 109 basis points. So that's a positive value there. Corporate profits. So the Bloomberg consensus, we derive the implied sales growth rate in terms of Bloomberg consensus estimates for the S&P. That number has been trending lower. That, then we also derive the implied earnings growth rate. For the S&P, that number has been trending lower as well. Analysts are expecting growth and inflation to continue slowing alongside the growth and inflation outlook itself. Fiscal policy, looking at the sovereign fiscal balance as a percent of GDP, as I mentioned, it's minus 7.3% in the most recent month of April. That's the most recent one we have data for. That's obviously trending lower and they were blowing at our budget deficit. As a function of that, the real effective exchange rate has been trending lower as well in terms of the dollar. So that's the kind of the real economy cycle. It obviously points to an economy that's in what we call deflation. 
That's where growth and inflation are trending lower simultaneously. And the conviction associated with that is high, given that it's expected to remain in deflation for at least the next year, just going to those Wall Street economists' consensus estimates. In terms of the financial economy cycles, we look at monetary policy, liquidity, interest rates, and then positioning through the lens of the fear and greed. We'll start with monetary policy. We'll start with our adjusted net liquidity model we talked about earlier, which is the Fed balance sheet minus the treat TGA minus the emergency lending on the Fed balance sheet and the RRP. And so that, pro- that proxy has been trending lower. We had a couple of days where it looked like it was starting to trend higher, but that was right at the lows of the TGA. So that signal was not persistent. We have our global liquidity proxy as well in there as well. And our global liquidity proxy is the dollar sum of the global central bank balance sheets, global narrow money supply, and global FX reserves minus gold. That number has been trending lower and something I've been I'm very much calling attention to at the year-to-date highs in Bitcoin, telling investors to kind of book gains around 30K. And that turned out to be quite, quite the call. Liquidity, domestic narrow money supply is trending lower in the US. So it's minus 9.8% year over year. That's the lowest number we've ever had in the time series. Same thing with global P-weighted narrow money supply. That's minus 2.4% year over year. It's trending lower. It's also the lowest zero percentile number in that time series. Benchmark policy rate, obviously Fed funds rate has been trending higher. It may start to trend sideways. I don't expect it to. Eventually, I think there's going to be at least another one or two rate hikes. It may come reluctantly, but I think there's going to have to be as we get into the second half of the year. Two-year nominal yield spread relative to the benchmark policy rate. So that's what our short rates pricing in relative to the Fed funds rate. That number is a minus 70 basis point, and it's been trending lower. And then when we get into our positioning indicators, we're aggregating U.S. dollar positioning across all the major currencies. And on a non-commercial net length basis as a percent of total open interest, investors are 11% long the U.S. dollar. Now, that number was up at like 20-something percent a few months ago, back towards the dollar's high. So it's come off a bit, but it's right now it's at a neutral signal in terms of the Z-score. Aggregated U.S. rates positioning, we aggregate rates across from euro dollars all the way out to the long bond into one signal. And that number is minus 14% in terms of non-commercial net length as a percent of open interest. That's an extreme bearish signal there. And the commodities, we aggregate commodities all across the commodities that the CFTC keeps track of. That's at 3%. That's an extreme bearish signal. And then uh, equity is an extreme bearish signal as well in terms of positioning at minus 5% non-commercial net length. And so we refresh this model every single day. Or all these single, these are all independent variables and they all contribute independently to each asset class based on the expected return dispersion that each signal produces. In fact, you'll see a better look at that on slide. I want to say 82. Um, if you, so if you just look at growth right now, growth is trending lower. And so right now it's supplying this set of excess return dispersion to the overall signal of the model. So each independent, each asset class is independent right now. So you would do on that, that each asset class is independent. So that process is so on and so forth across all the different indicators in the model. And so ultimately when we go back to the main weather model signal, right now, this collection of signals where these arrows going up or down of the extreme positioning signals are telling you that the three month outlook for buying stocks from today, Friday, June 9th is positive. The three month outlook for buying bonds today, Friday, June 9th, so September 9th, is negative, dollars negative, commodities negative, Bitcoin's negative. Doesn't that kind of feel like the whole market right now? <laughs> it's been like this for about a week or so. The stock market signal was neutral prior to, prior to last Friday. We got an extreme negative signal in an equities market. So that switched it to positive for the equity market because again, we're, what's actually one of the more positive signals. We were contributing this excess return dispersion for a week or so, and we went back to contributing this excess return dispersion. That's obviously quite positive for the stock market. And in terms of our weather model signal right now, it's saying if you're buying the stocks with a three-month forward view, it's fine. I don't think you're going to make money over the next one to two months because I think the liquidity situation here in the U.S. with the TGA, the return of Uncle Sam, and then global liquidity is on the retreat as well. You have some adverse liquidity developments, obviously, in Europe with the bank, with the ACB and the Bank of England. Japan does very much is 
very much not going to supply liquidity anytime soon, especially without any speculative attacks on the yield curve control. And then lastly, we think the recent moves that the Chinese authorities have made in terms of adding incremental macro prudential measures in the easy in the real estate market and also the sort of window guidance that they pushed through this week with respect to deposit rates. I don't think there's a big easing push on the way there either. If anything, that's what they would lead with if that's what they truly really wanted to do. So that's a long-winded way of saying, let me summarize my views because you know there's a lot of stuff going on here. I think markets are probably going to take a bath over the next couple of months because of the adverse liquidity developments in the U.S. and global economy. What this weather model signal is telling me is that three months from now, we're probably going to have recovered from that bath. And so by the time you get to September, maybe even October, I do believe markets are likely to peak sometime in Q4 associated with our call for a recession to commence sometime in Q4, maybe Q1. And if markets peak sometime in Q4, it's probably going to look very blow off toppy because that's the history of asset markets leading up to what we call that phase two credit cycle downturn, which is the process markets take to price in the recession, which has not been priced in yet. There's an additional tailwind from a seasonal perspective for your call for the stock market right now. Obviously, the sell in May and go away adage, but we do have quite, from our perspective, from our signals, there, there's strong data from the June through September period really is much, much weaker for U.S. equities. So that jives quite well with these, this additional dynamic from the TGA. Yeah, absolutely. Let me just draw it. Yeah, I can draw it, draw a picture. We, you are here in the stock market. You're probably going down here and you're going to recover into year in. I don't know, year in might be too aggressive of a statement. I don't have that kind of crystal ball, but I think this is the, I think you can take this snapshot away. I think if you're a bond investor, you've been going down, you'll probably have some capitulation this summer and then that's probably it. And you can start rallying from there. So that's our main view on the primary asset classes. I think big, the things that are further down the risk curve are probably going to struggle throughout this entire process because it's unlikely that we see any real material improvement in liquidity conditions domestically and globally on the other side of this. You, you might, not just, to mention might the, just stop getting worse. Not to mention the regulatory hammer has been coming down for the digital asset space in the last few weeks. I'm one of the guys that thinks regulation is bullish, okay? but the, this type of regulation is bearish because there's not actual regulation. They're just regulating by, by, by indictment. They're not actually putting things through Congress. When they start putting things through Congress and you give people a real bounded set of outcomes, it's going to be extremely bullish. Establish the guardrails, send people they to know. understand where the bright lines are for they sure. Know. Institutional investors can't really go in size until we have those guardrails. When we get the real regulation, Bitcoin's going to 200,000 because you, you have a whole set of institutional allocators that would probably like to be long some Bitcoin based on everything we've talked about today about the long-term future for the bond market. They're long, I don't know, let's say, the, 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 they're obviously not, but let's say the global asset allocation is 60-40 fixed income in terms of paper assets. That's got to go to 60-30-10 in this, this, this world we're talking about where populism is really driving the boat across both sides of the aisle. You can't be 60-40 in this world with certainly at the starting point of term premium and the starting point of inflation expectations. Without a doubt. I know we only have a few more minutes. You have a hard stop at five. So maybe if you could comment a little bit, there's a quite nuanced view on the dollar here because I think your shorter term signals, at least from what we gathered from the materials you shared, you shared with us this week, seems like there is a bit of a bullish signal on the crowding model, but then your macro weather model is indicating this outlook that we see on the screen right now, which is a slightly more, more, more bearish. So there's a bit of a nuanced picture here on the dollar. Maybe you could describe it for us. Well, yeah, absolutely. It's our, so our research is always nuanced. So what we try to do is me, the human being, I try to come up with qualitative research views based on my understanding of all these cycles and how they interrelate to each other. The machine, the weather model is trying to tell me is this a good time to be long with the thing you're, you're, what's in your brain or not? 
And right now the weather model is saying the dollar, the three month outlook for the dollar is bearish. I happen to disagree with that as a human being because mm-hmm. the weather model is agnostic to understanding all these different dynamics with respect to TGA, all that stuff. I'm over, if I was putting on a trade, I would override the weather model to my own peril. You generally don't want to override the weather model. We show our back test here for in terms of the composite signal. You're generally making a ton of money if you're long things that the weather model is bullish on and short things that the weather model is bearish on. So the stock market signal, the bond market signal, this is the dollar signal here on the left, commodity signal on the right. And then this thing has been right as rain on Bitcoin. And these are all rolling out of sample backtests. Yeah, I don't believe in sample backtesting at all because this is not what we do as investors. This is, this is a pretty solid, a pretty solid process. There are times where the weather model signal on the dollar is bullish and it goes down. There are times when the weather model signal on the dollar is bearish and it goes up. And I think this is one of those times. How are your crowding models indicating? What are they indicating from a single perspective for the dollar? I know that's a much shorter term model, right? Yeah, no signal. There's no signal in the crowding model unless you get an extreme dislocation, dislocation, dislocation yeah. in terms of flows and an extreme dislocation in terms of momentum. The dollar has a signal in months. So I pulled out, I teased out one thing that I thought was interesting as well. The cross-asset correction risk indicator. Mm-hmm. I think there, you seem to be suggesting that we're currently in dominant market regime as Goldilocks, but we're creeping a little bit on some potential crash risk. Is that related to the TGA? Has that signal washed out or is that still on the radar? Completely unrelated to TGA. That's just another statistical process where we're trying to look at the changes in our volatility, just momentum signals across all the major macro markets in the world, 42 markets in that model. And based on the composition of the changes, it's suggesting that the probability is rising that we have a, a risk-off event. In fact, we just crossed the threshold in, in this, I think earlier this week that said, okay, you need to be high on alert, high alert for having a risk off event. That's what cross-asset correction risk indicate. But again, that corroborates our view that this sort of liquidity drain, both domestically and globally, that's ongoing, domestically, it's been ongoing for a couple of months now, that we're going to meet up with this ongoing domestic global liquidity drain with our own liquidity drain here in the U.S. And that could be the, the that could be the fundamental thing that causes CACRI to be right. You know, what we're always trying to do at 42 Macro is understand where we are on these different cycles, how they relate back to the market cycle, use quantitative tools, sophisticated tools to say it's a good time or bad time to put on that research view in, in the market. You always have to separate your research from your risk management and you should only be acting as an investor in terms of putting money to work or taking money off the table when the research and the risk management are in unison. So right now, going back to this conversation we're having on the dollar, weather model's bearish, Darius is bullish, there should be no position. I should have no position in the dollar because our risk management signal is incongruent with our research signal. When they're the same, you can met, lever up and do what do what you do what you please. Amazing. Right, gotta, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're right on. Yeah, the hour yeah. flew by. So many threads to pull on. Definitely could keep conversation going for at least another hour, but I know you have to go. So where can people Thank find you so it? much, Darius. Of course. Yeah. Give us your final plug before we sign off. Yeah, oh, where can they find you? Absolutely. I'm the big black guy on Twitter. <laughs> no, I appreciate you guys for having me, Adam Richard, man. You guys all, like I said, you guys do great work. Love checking out your podcast. You guys have a real institutional feel to what it is that you're doing. So I personally like it because back in my former, I'm always, I was always traveling around the world, meeting with institutional investors. And now I'm in this echo chamber. Obviously we have Zoom meetings, but it's not the same. It's really not the same. So the podcast really keeps you in the flow these days. And so I appreciate what you guys are doing. Hopefully folks appreciate what we're trying to do. We're effectively trying to bring institutional, we're trying to bridge the gap between what the folks in London and Boston and New York and Chicago are doing it on the, in those tall office buildings to what investors should be doing in their own personal portfolios. And so we're basically trying to level the playing field by offering these very deep institutional insights to all investors of all kind, a very affordable price. Uh, definitely come check us out at 42 Macro. 
If you can't afford our research, there's no biggie. It's all good. We put out a lot of free stuff to help educate our audience. Amazing. You great all right. Work, man. Thank you, Darius. We'll let you go so you can meet your appointment. We'll have you back soon. Thanks again. Awesome, man. Great weekend. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investorsall. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for resolve masterclass.